0: Genesis 38 is one of those chapters in the Bible that many have felt should have an age restriction on it. It's a story in the Bible that many Christians in history have blushed at because Christians don't often talk about sex. But just before Dan reads this chapter to us, I'd like to say that if you feel your children are too young to understand the material in this chapter, then Elise has kindly provided some alternative resources for us to look at as families this morning Uh, You'll find those resources on the church website, and I hope they're a blessing to you as you seek to worship God together as a family. On the other hand, there may be some of us who have yet to talk to our children about sex and God's design for sex. Well, perhaps it might be that this is a good time uh, to do that. You see, this is a chapter in the Bible that shows us how far from God's people, uh, how far from God God's people have wandered and yet in spite of the mess God is faithful and will bring them back to him. My suggestion is that if your child is uh, um, uh, year five or above then they're ready to hear this and they're also ready to talk about it afterwards. So please do take this God-given opportunity to do that either today after the sermon or later on this week.
1: At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that, he, that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, uh, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. (coughs) After a long time, Judah's wife and daughter of Shua died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his wife, Hera, the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the centre of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. "And what? And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him, and she left. She took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at a name? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owes these, who owns these, she said. And she added, See, if you recognise who sealed were cord and staff these are. Judah recognised them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb as she was giving birth one of them put out his hand so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his waist and said this one came out first but when he drew back his hand his brother came out and she said so this is how you have broken out and he was named Perez then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zerah.
0: well good morning as we start this morning let me tell you about where i'm filming this sermon i'm in our front room And it might be from the viewpoint of the camera that it's quite a serene place to be. The walls are a calming colour. There's a nice picture in the frame behind me. The curtain is hanging symmetrically and there are no obvious cobwebs on the wall. But if I get my trusty cameraman to pan around the room, what you see is a completely different story. There's scale electrics all over the floor and an ironing board that was used to prop up a computer for a Zoom piano lesson. There are blankets all over the sofa. A coffee table is covered in books and DVDs and old mugs that have yet to be put away. And then there are some slightly bedraggled looking flowers on the mantelpiece. Now I'm not showing you this to show up on my family or even to make you feel better in case your front room is looking messy as well. But I'm showing it to you because it's a great illustration of what's going on in this morning's passage. You see, we perhaps expect the story of Jacob's family to be a bit respectable and sorted. After all, God had promised Jacob that his descendants would receive an inheritance of nations, that his descendants would bless all nations and become a nation in their own right. But what the Bible wants us to see is that the mess that Jacob's family is in is immense. The Bible wants us to see how far from God spiritually they really were. And yet at the same time, the Bible also wants us to see that under all, underneath all this mess, is a God who leads events and a God who uses the most unlikely people who come from less than perfect backgrounds to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And I hope that's an encouragement for us this morning. Because it teaches us that we don't need to feel the pressure in our own lives to put on an acceptable face before we come to God, because he will use us for his glory even in our brokenness and our failure. And, our mess. and that brings us to our first point this morning, which is Judah's inheritance rejected. Judah's inheritance rejected for whatever reason, whether through guilt because he'd sold one of his brothers into slavery or through sheer the sheer shame of seeing his father grieve at Joseph's death. At the beginning of chapter 38, Judah clearly begins a descent, a spiral into sin. Look with me at the first few verses of Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. So Judah moves away from his family. He takes up with his Canaanite mates and he takes a Canaanite wife, just like the secular people around him did. The Hebrew phrases in these verses paint a darker picture of Judah's wickedness than the English translations do. These phrases, turned aside and went down, are a particular use of language. Generally, when they're used, they describe someone who is turning away from loyalty and spiralling morally. In Judah's case, he was rejecting his family and his God. Also, the Hebrew for that short sentence at the end of verse two, he married her and made love to her, is far more graphic than the English. The Hebrew literally says he saw her and took her. It's a phrase that describes someone who has abandoned morality and surrendered themselves to satisfying their lust. There's no respect, there's no dignity, there's no beauty in this description. Judas saw her and took her. He behaves like the world he's living in. He's living without reference to God. And he's embracing everything that the secular world embraces. It's like he's in denial It's like everything he'd been told as a boy about God's love and faithfulness and promises to his ancestors had been rejected. Judah goes his own way. He is his own boss. He follows his own rules. He had rejected the inheritance that is rightfully his as a descendant of Abraham. And yet God blesses Judah with three sons who grow up and the eldest then gets married. We're told this in verse six. It says this, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So clearly a lot of time passes. And yet it seems that in spite of Judah's turning away from God, God has not turned away from Judah. And then a surprising thing happens. God is mentioned directly for the first time in the story of Jacob's son's. It's fascinating. For three chapters, God has not been mentioned directly or even though we've seen his hand at work behind the scenes. But by not mentioning God directly in the story, the writer uses this silence as a tool that helps us see how far from God Jacob's family had wandered. Look at verse seven with me. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Interestingly here, the writer, who we know is Moses, interrupts the story to explain why Ur dies. Moses tells us God intervenes directly and puts Ur to death. And it happened because there was a steady and steep moral decline in Jacob's family. God was outraged at the slow and steady creep of sin in Judah's family. Now, we might find this shocking. Some of us might see it as something as unfair, something that God ought not to have done. But we have to realise the Bible is clear. Sin brings a penalty either now or later because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's one of the great themes in the Bible. Sin has consequences both now and in eternity. And ultimately, sin leads to our eternal death. And because the wages of sin is eternal death it means that the world's greatest need is for a way to deal with sin the sin that is inside us all as death says it loud and clear god will judge everyone for their wickedness and that means everyone all of us need a way to deal with our sin so going back to the story, we're told that Judah then tries to do the right thing. Er dies. So Judah says to Onan, his second son, do your duty. Sleep with your brother's widow and make sure that your brother gets an heir. Now, I know this is an odd thing, but it all has to do with the laws of inheritance at the time. Inheritance laws were fairly basic back then, essentially the eldest son inherited the father's estate. So if a firstborn son married and doesn't produce an heir before he dies, then the custom at the time dictated that his next brother would sleep with his widow and father an heir in his place. Essentially, the deceased brother would be given an heir who would carry on his inheritance and family line. However, this is what happens in verse nine. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever, whenever he slept with Tamar, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. You see, Onan wanted the inheritance for himself. He uses a crude form of birth control so that his own future children would receive the inheritance that was rightfully Tamar's children. And then we're told this in verse 10. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. And again, Moses intervenes in the story and explains why Onan was put to death too. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. Why was it wicked? Well, there were three reasons, at least three reasons. Firstly, each time he had sex with Tamar he was technically raping her. She endured sex with him so many times, knowing that he didn't intend to give her children by it. Secondly, his actions denied Tamar her right to be the mother of Israelites. I, I'm not going to go into the details of how we, we, we can say she knew this, But as you connect the details of the story and see the bigger picture from it, it becomes clear that she understands the inheritance of nations that comes through being a descendant of Abraham. And because she had married into the family, it's become her right to be part of that story. Onan denies her this. Thirdly, his sin was against God too. He was taking the mick. His duty was to his family and to his ancestors. It was to give Abraham descendants and fulfil the promises of God that Ur could not. So he sinned against God's purposes. In other words, Judah's great inheritance of nations was being mocked, was being spat on, was being thrown out with the trash. And the writer wants us to see you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool God. And Onan's wickedness is why God put him to death. Do you know, in the end, Tamar is effectively put on the shelf. Her right to be the mother of the child that receives the inheritance of the people of God is mothballed. Judah and his sons have rejected God's inheritance and become no more than the Canaanites around them. Judah's third son, Sheila grows up to be a man and old enough to give her a child, but he's not asked to do that. Tamar knows that this wickedness has set in and if she does nothing, she was destined to die childless and without an heir for her dead husband. It's a shocking story, isn't it? And it tells us Jacob's family has wandered far from God. And that's a story that reminds us that none of us are immune from the deadly creep of sin in our lives. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We don't drift into holiness. The drift of our hearts is always away from holiness because our hearts are sinful and we are in need of a saviour. I don't know whether that describes any of us this morning, whether young or old, it might be that we're drifting into sin and sinful ways without really acknowledging it. It might be that we've stopped praying. It might be that we've stopped fellowshipping with other believers. It might be that we've stopped believing that God can deal with the most difficult things that we're facing. Well I hope this story shakes us into crying out to God in repentance and fear because God is not to be mocked. It's dangerous to sink into the drift of sin. It's dreadful to be in such a place that we lose sight of the inheritance that Christ has won for us on the cross. Judah and his sons rejected his inheritance. They drifted into sin and away God and that lead us leads us into our second point which is this Judah's inheritance is sold Judah's inheritance is sold death seems to stalk Judah soon after the death of his sons his wife dies too at one point it seems as though he's had he's got everything a wife three boys friends and yet now it comes crashing down. And in this grief, it seems as though God is wanting Judah to wake up, to wake up to his mortality, to to his moral failure, to his rejection of God. And in this sense, God is often willing to allow us to totally fall off the cliff if the pain it brings draws us back to our senses. For Judah, it seems like his grief sent him off the rails for a bit. Look with me at verse 12. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who was shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adalamite, went with him. It seems like Judah wants to drown his grief in a party, in, in busyness, in friends. Now Tamar hears about it and she sees her chance. We have to remember the, the inheritance of nations that God promised to Abraham is her right as the wife of the firstborn son of Judah. She knows what Judah is like and so she's willing to do what it takes to win what is rightfully hers. So she decides to sleep with Judah to get an heir. In other words, her faith in the promises of God drive her to claim her right to be called a mother of Israel. Look with me at what she does in verse 14. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. He's as predictable as the face of a clock. We've seen it before with how he met his wife, and we see it here with Tamar. His lust is insatiable. And predictably, when he can't find his wallet, he's so driven by his lust that he exchanges the most precious thing he has on him. Tamar knows his father-in-law well, her father-in-law well, and she knows that he would give anything for sex. So she demands something precious. Look at verse 18 with me. He said, what what pledge should I give you? What payment, in other words, should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to to her and and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. It's a huge step to take. Judah buys sex with Tamar with his tokens of office. They are the things that say he is him. That say he's a child of Israel, a son of Abraham, an inheritor of the promises of God. He knows what they mean. They are symbols of his birthright, and yet he treats them like they mean nothing to him. He exchanges them for a casual fling. He follows the way of his uncle Esau, who sold his birthright to Jacob, his brother, for a bowl of stew, uh, for a bowl of stew, and with it, the inheritance of nations. Do you see what God had become to Judah? Judah's so lost in his way that he behaves like his cursed uncle. He technically throws away his birthright. This time for the idolatry of sexual pleasure. It's one of the most chilling incidents in the Bible. We would do well to honestly look at this man and weep. Weep not just for him, but for those Christian and men and women who today turn away from the promises of God and follow their lusts of their heart. We would do well also to examine ourselves and see if there is any such simple way in us that would lead us to do and follow in what Judah has done here. But you know, the story doesn't end there. The story continues to record how judah's inheritance is restored and that's our next point judah's inheritance restored what follows is the injustice of double standards judah goes off to a party she takes off her prostitute clothes and goes back to being the widow on the shelf and when judah's servant can't find the prostitute to give the goat to Judah thinks he's got away with a free quickie. Verse 23 says this. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. He puts the matter aside. And then time passes. Again, three months later. But now he hears that Tamar is pregnant and immediately... He's incensed with her promiscuity. He says this, bring her out and have her burnt to death. It's horrible to see these double standards in others. And yet I hope it also makes us fear the wickedness of our own pride and sin in our lives because the warning is that sin can so sear the conscience that we become blind to the depths of our own depravity and end up condemning others for sinful things that we do. Our pride can blind us to double standards, whether that's at work or in the home or even in church. And may God save us from it, lest we are publicly shamed as fools like Judah is here. So Judah has Tamar dragged out for a public execution for prostitution, but she sends words to him that she is pregnant with his son. And the games have to stop. Judah's double standards have been publicly revealed. He is the unrighteousness. She is vindicated, declared right. Look with me at what he says in verse 26, Judah recognised his staff and his seal and his cord and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. He accepts his guilt. She's declared righteous. In other words, legally declared that she has done nothing wrong. Actually, she's done the right thing. And Judah is the sinner. He's the one who who refused to give her an inheritance and honour God's promises to Israel. And she becomes the hero, because even though her actions are wrong, she is prepared to sacrifice everything and be utterly humiliated in order to be called an ancestor of Israel. And that's what she becomes, because of her daring, outrageous insistence on capturing that which was hers by right. It's incredible. And for the first time in the story of Jacob's sons, we find one of them acting in repentance. Isn't that amazing? This public exposure of Judah's double standards convicts him of sin, and he says so. And his confession of sin shows us that God is working in him. It's as if he's reached his moral low point where he finally accepts that he is a sinner before God. What a blessing to see that. As we said at the beginning, God works in people despite their mess. God works to draw people to himself, even in the midst of terrible sin. But what about Tamar? Why is she here? And then when you look at all the other characters in the rest of the Bible, why is it that she seems to be celebrated rather than forgotten? For example, she's mentioned in the book of Ruth, chapter four, and is celebrated as one of David's ancestors. David was a great king of Israel. And then in the record of Christ's ancestry in Matthew, chapter one, she's one of five women who appear in that list. Why is she honoured? That brings us to our last point this this morning. Tamar's inheritance honoured. Tamar's inheritance honoured. She's never forgotten because she models a godly hunger for the promises of God. So, So she was willing to sacrifice everything so that she might have the inheritance of nations that was rightfully hers. And her tenacity to claim God's promises foreshadows a greater, sinless hero who was to come. His name is Jesus. Because just like Tamar, Jesus was driven by his desire for the inheritance of nations that was rightfully his. Just like Tamar. Jesus entered the depths of the depravity of this world and sacrificed his glory that he might win the inheritance of nations that is rightfully his. Just like Tamar, Jesus endured unimaginable, unimaginable shame and humiliation To win the inheritance of nations that is rightfully his. And just like Tamar, Jesus bore his shame to the full. And when he rose from the dead, he shamed those who judged him as unworthy. Just like Tamar, he is proved to be the righteous one in a world full of unrighteousness. Just like Tamar, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was publicly vindicated, declared right as the greater hero of a greater story. And just like Tamar does for Judah, Jesus takes shameful sinners like us and raises them up to a seat of honour and glory. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 5. There it's got a picture of, of all of heaven gathered to hear who it is that will take a scroll a, a, a metaphorical scroll and, and open the book that, that writes, uh, unfolds human history. And John in, in Revelation 5 weeps because no one is found to be able to do that. No one can unfold the story of human history. And as as John is weeping, one of the heavenly elders comes up to him and says this, Do not weep, see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. That's Tamar's legacy. That scandalous one night stand brings Judah to glory through their great, great descendant, Jesus. And yet how much greater is Jesus's glorification of his children that he has won through his death on the cross. But whereas Tamar has to use and abuse the sin around her to deceive Judah into giving her her inheritance, our greater hero Jesus steps into our brokenness and our mess. And he fights for the inheritance of nations. He, a perfect man, without sin. He rose above the sinful world that he came to save. He didn't entertain it and now he rightfully sits at the right hand of God, the Father in glory, and judges the nations whom he came to save. Do you know what, If, if truth be told, I don't quite know how to finish this sermon. Sometimes when the Bible reveals to us the fullness and the riches of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, as this passage does. The only right response is to bow down in worship. I suggest we pray, and then we're going to sing our final hymn. And then can I challenge you to take the time where you are to just stop. When the service finishes, stop. And think and meditate on our greater hero, on our precious Lord Jesus Christ, who has accomplished all this for us, the inheritance of nations for us, that we might belong to Him both now and in eternity for the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Oh dear Father God, we praise you and worship you for our our greater hero, Jesus Christ, who stepped into the brokenness and mess of this world and fought and died for the inheritance of nations that are rightfully his. We praise you, Lord God Almighty, that he rose from the dead, vindicated, declared right, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father in a place of glory and honour and majesty and dominion. We praise you that all who trust in his work, in his death and resurrection, belong to him, belong to his kingdom and are his inheritance. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning for all that you have accomplished, for being our great hero who has done what it took to save the nations, to save broken and messed up people like us. Father, we bow down this morning in humble adoration as we look upon Jesus and worship him. Amen.